G'day, Tim here with a message from our podcast sponsor, Arcterix. We are explorers and Arcterix have been working together for years now. We love their commitments to the environment, their diversity initiatives, and their hardcore, great-looking gear. What I want to tell you about is their Arcterix Winter Film Tour. Uh, they've got two short films, Maven by Divya Gordon, which also features Kate Donald, a regular We Are Explorers contributor and gear reviewer, and there's Convergence by Taylor Benny Fall. Both films shine a light on skiers and snowboarders in the backcountry in Australia, uh, what makes them feel at home, how it's special to them. And what they do is they have the filmmakers, the cast and crew on stage for special Q&As. They talk about the process of making films in the backcountry, you know, up in the mountains, uh, the boundaries they're pushing, and basically gives you a bit of behind-the-scenes look to these gorgeous films. Uh, tickets are $17.30, and it's touring throughout July. They've got basically all of the ski resorts, Buller, Hotham, Falls, Jindabyne, uh, Canberra, Threadbow, Bright for screenings, as well as Melbourne. Uh, so if you're near the snow, if you're heading down, uh, if you live near there, definitely go and check out one of these film screenings. We'll have info in the show notes uh, and on the We Are Explorers events calendar. Cheers. From We Are Explorers, I'm Henry Bryden, and this is the Inside Out series. We Are Explorers' longtime contributor, Pat Corden, recently caught up with Evan Howard from Terra Rossa Gear and went for a ride along the Biro, the Yarra River in Melbourne. They huddled in Evan's workshop to escape the rain and chatted all things adventure, gear and sustainability. Evan's the first design ambassador in Australia for Arcteryx and is helping to propel forward the Rebird program, which basically gives gear a second life and turns discarded products into these completely new creations. So thanks for tuning in, everyone, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's now recording. Beautiful. Test, test. Sweet. Check, check. Cool. So I'm, I'm sitting here with Evan, also known as Terra Rossa Gear. How you doing, mate? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Thanks, mate. We, um, we're sitting up here in your kind of gear loft, I would say. What do you call it? That's a, yeah, good question. Uh, I call it the upstairs. Um, <laughs> it's, it, you have to go up a few dodgy stairs to get into it. Uh, but it's just above my garage and it houses a couple of my sewing machines so I can still do a little bit of work from home. Um, because I have a little eight-month-old daughter who I like to be around as much as possible. For sure. And uh, this morning, we went for a, a bit of a ride, a gravel ride. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we just um, throw in a quick little urban adventure today to get uh, get the legs moving in the morning. Um, but yeah, today, today's little ride was really good, just down onto the, um, the Yarra Main Trail, uh, which is part of my commute into the workshop when I, when I ride. But it's just this absolute gem of a trail system running right through the heart of Melbourne uh, along the, the Yarra River, Beerurong. And, and you were saying, you know, we, it's, it's so interesting because we are in the city, but you wouldn't know it. And you were saying you pack rafts along there sometimes. Very much, yeah. So I'll, um, I'll jump in with the, the pack raft, get the bike on there and, and do a little loop that I kind of developed during lockdown. Uh, once we had our 10 kilometer radius from my house, uh, I was very, very, very fortunate to have that uh, included in there. Uh, and, you know, you jump onto the water and you are transported to the wilderness. You have no idea that you're in a metropolis of four million people or whatever Melbourne is at this moment. Uh, and it's, yeah, it was it was a great escape and, and still is. I still, whenever I have a few hours to, to kill, because literally I know I can go door to door in three hours. 
So yeah, pretty, pretty special. Yeah. And we got a bit of that this morning. Hey, like a, a little ride, a bit of nature. I think we still um, managed to kind of fit in with the Melbourne stereotype a little bit because we stopped and <laughs> made a coffee. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> mandatory, mandatory. On and, a, on and, a nice now, um, and now back here, just as the rain settled in again for mm-hmm. a chat. Yeah. We managed to catch that little weather window of about hour and a half, <laughs> it seems like. And uh, yeah, now we're, now we're back up here with a roof over our head. Here comes more of that rain. I'm not... <laughs> Before we get stuck into it, just want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land run, the Wurundjeri people. Definitely. And just pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was was never ceded. And, and on that, you were just telling me before that you're, I think you were one of the first kind of small gear makers in Melbourne to put on your on your labels, the traditional country, where it comes from? Oh, very much, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe I was, uh, yeah, up there or anything, but uh, yeah, it's certainly, it's something that's very important to me and, and traditional names and understanding how the land that I'm uh, building on, as well as where I go and, and travel through, what it, what it was used for, how it was used. I love to understand as much as possible. I think it's a very easy and very small thing to just say my gear is built on Rwandry country. Evan, to start us off, can you um, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, give us give us an introduction, who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. It's well, a big question to start. That, yes, <laughs> how, how do I sum myself up? Um, well, I, yeah, I obviously run Terrorosa Gear and I'm 35. I've now got an eight-month-old daughter who I'm uh, yeah, just overjoyed with. She's bringing lots of amazing changes to my life um, because, yeah, I love adventure. Uh, and the adventure has always influenced the direction of my life for as, pretty much as long as I can remember in some sense. Um, but certainly for the last 15 to 20 years, it's been prominent and I've been making a living um, as well as enjoying the adventures. Um, Yeah, you know, in terms of the adventures, mountaineering, climbing, biking, rafting, like, gee, I I like to have a finger in all the pies. Um, I just, every flavor is just so fun and so cool. It's, you know, you just have to find time to break it down and do all of them. Unfortunately, you know, we only have a only have a short time, I suppose. Uh, try to do as much as you as you can with that. For sure. And you touched on or briefly mentioned Terrorosa Gear as well. What's that about? Yeah, Terrorosa is a little company um, that I started back in 2010. Uh, well, I, that's when I incorporated, so I get taxes and you know all, all the <laughs> all the benefits of being an actual thing. Uh, but I'd been tinkering with gear for years before that as well. And yeah, it was. It's I now. It's, golly, how do you say it? But um, it's organically grown since starting it uh, to what it is now. And now it's my full-time gig. And I've, I contract out to a couple of uh, very talented sewers, uh, James and Abby, uh, who come in quite often. Yeah, there's this little team of people now that it's become. And uh, it's just just a rad, rad unit. And we try and build the best things that we, we really possibly can. And going all the way back to the start, when did you start to fall in love with adventures? Well, I was born in uh, in Canada, in British Columbia. So I almost say adventure is, is part of your makeup there. Like you just, you know, you have harsh winters and then, you know, incredible summers. So you're always going to be doing something like 
being indoors wasn't really what you did unless it was minus 35 and the buses wouldn't take you to school. Like one of my main inspirations though, funnily enough, is actually video games, The Legend of Zelda. I, I like remember playing the original on the Nintendo Entertainment System as, you know, a five, six year old and just being like, man, this is really cool. This world is amazing. And then I wanted to go out and play in it. Instead of playing more of the game, I was like, well, now I want to go out and like swing swords around. So yeah, I wasn't, the swords didn't last very long and neither did the car tires that I was sorting. <laughs> but <laughs> the, um, the ideas kind of went from, from there. So yeah, I, I had various other interests in my life at that time, soccer being, being one of them. Um, and then after I decided to, uh, to leave that game in my uh, early 20s is when it really became uh, much more adventure focused for the adventure, not just, oh, I enjoy a bike ride or anything like that. Let's go for a little climb or something. It was like, I'm climbing now to climb or I'm biking now to bike. I'm after the adventure for the adventure that it provides. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I love it. And you mentioned a couple of activities before. Can, can you dive into them? You've, you said you got a lot of fingers and a lot of pies um, and you like all of those flavors. Yeah, very much. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are some flavors that are um, coming up a lot at the moment? Uh, I picked up skis again this year, um, or sorry, over the last few years, kind of, well, I, I wanted to get back into skiing pretty heavy and then COVID hit. Um, and so skiing was something I really enjoyed as a, in, my, in my youth, um, but I'd never pursued it so much. Uh, because I was much more uh, into the climbing and the, the mountaineering and, and the bike packing sort of sort of things. But the opportunity for um, skiing came up with um, Abby and James, who I mentioned before. They're both very passionate skiers and um, being being the team in Terros, I really took the inspiration from, from their passion to go like, well, you know what, let's get skiing again. Uh, and when Gwendolyn arrived, um, it, uh, it's changed my idea of risk and risk acceptance for mountaineering as well as for climbing and, and some of those traditionally more dangerous aspects. Um, and funnily enough, I, I feel when I'm skiing, I can, um, I can manage those risks a little bit better. I'm very comfortable with avalanche terrain and that sort of thing where, so my objective dangers when I ski, I feel I can manage them better is a, probably the best way to say it than when I'm uh, mountaineering or going for an exploratory climb or something like that. Um, I'm, a, I'm also a better skier than I am a climber. <laughs> I'm, I'm a terrible rock climber. So yeah, that, those, those are kind of um, those sort of things. And then just with adventure, the other flavors that I've mentioned, like biking, uh, I love biking. Um, and I just love a good, simple steel frame bicycle. I've got, a, I've got two, one that I ride for adventure, bikepacking, and then one that I commute on. Um, both of them are nearly as old as I am uh, with some modern components. Uh, and what I find with, with bicycling is uh, very rarely will I just get out to go for a ride on the bike. It's always a ride to go somewhere and do something. Uh, so, uh, you know, you might have the rope and you might be riding to a canyon or you'll maybe the skis are lashed on the bike or uh, my personal favorite, especially during the lockdowns here in, in Melbourne, was the raft. So the raft is on the bike and then you go for a bike raft on uh, on Birarung, um, Yarra River. And yeah, that was just a, a great way for me to, to keep sane. That's awesome. And and how did you get into kind of extreme navigation? Can can you tell me a little bit more about that, kind of what it is and what are some of the, the bigger trips that you've done? Yeah, extreme navigation, that's a, that's a cool term for it. 
um, I think it's almost a, like an aspect of it. The navigation is is a vital skill um, when you're out in the out in the mountains. Like let's say some of the trips to the Terrarosa. So if it's uh, maybe this, I'm preempting a question maybe here at some point, but the Terrarosa Glacier is a glacial complex in the Coast Mountains of British Columbia, uh, and that's where I really had my first really cool mountaineering trips and experienced the um, uh, like the the harsh realities of mountaineering and how dangerous it can be um, nobody's died on any of those trips I'll, I'll make that clear but you know the the seeing what the objective dangers are capable of doing was those that was my introduction to it and I took a lot of inspiration from that and um, decided to call Terrosa Terrosa for that reason I ended up on a ramble there but yeah the extreme navigation aspect so um, in terms of those skills those skills all came quite um, organically as well but I, I was taught, I did some mountaineering courses, I did some ropes courses, I've done avalanche courses. Like there's these things where a little bit of knowledge could get you into a lot of trouble. And I was very conscious of those sort of things and where you can teach yourself or, or you can learn in a, in a certain way, great. If not, then you need to be told because if you find yourself in situations which are out of your control now, that's, that's, that's un, unacceptable uh, a lot of the time. Um, and some of the bigger trips, yeah, it would be, yeah, I'd just, again, stick with some of those Terrorosa trips where, you know, you're out for 14, 15 days unsupported, carrying all your own food, um, no hunting on those sort of trips or anything. Uh, so you, you're self-sustainable uh, and self-sufficient from your backpack. Um, and then, of course, on a trip like this, this isn't just a hiking trip. We're going to climb. So you're going to have your all your climbing kit, which weighs a lot more crampons, ice axes, rope, harnesses, helmets, all that sort of, uh, you know, kit and caboodle, all the paraphernalia that comes along with it. So yeah, you've got heavy packs uh, in dangerous and exciting terrain and all sorts of uh, cool things coming over um, in terms of weather and things that are, you know, quite, quite unpredictable once you get into those glacier complexes that kind of create and alter their own little weather systems. So they're very hard to predict whether or not you're getting uh, sorry, uh, depending, sorry, even if you are getting uh, reliable forecasts for the general area, these little microcosms of uh, and micro ecosystems can really just create their own thing. You'll never know what you're what you're going to find. Um, so the skills came a lot. Um, a, a lot of the skills came out of that naturally by if you don't have it, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble and uh, you just find some find some ways to learn it really bit of baptism by fire yeah almost yeah oh pretty much I, i'd say or yeah snow, or snow and ice i guess snow and ice yeah 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 good old white out white out learning are there any uh is there any kind of particular moments that really stand out to you i'm kind of like watching you talk about this um and can kind of see you gazing up and there's like some memories it seems like a replaying in your head oh, at the moment yeah yeah there's always you know like descending down a glacier and the, this glacier was one of the few glaciers that we were actually named and it was the staircase glacier and you can it was big steps of glacier all the way down for you know 800 meters down into the uh, to the next cirque and, uh, and and terminal lake and stuff and just a, a huge serac just broke off beside us and, and crashed down like you know this is pieces of ice the sizes of houses and just the, the way the sound travels through your body was uh, something I hadn't experienced even at the loudest bass concert or something that you've been to. Uh, and it was just downright frightening. So yeah, those sort of things, just can, that's just 
printed into my brain. Um, and you know, that's an, again, an objective danger. And we were in the, the right spot at the right time. Um, and able to gaze in awe at this sort of, uh, incredible moment. Um, and luckily we weren't on it or underneath it or anything. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that would be, uh, we wouldn't be chatting here today. Yes, yes, yeah. No, golly, that was that was something else. And then there's, there, you know, there's always sorts of things that you're climbing and you hear a whooshing. Was that a rock? Like, how close was that to my head? And you know, God, geez, hopefully the helmet would do its job if it got hit. Hopefully you're wearing the helmet, which is you know a good idea, of course. <laughs> For sure. And to kind of jump forward a little bit to what we've been up to today, um, we we were we were cycling um, and. You've done a fair bit of cycling and backpacking and, and whatnot. What is it about cycling that you love? What What's kind of got you hooked? Oh, geez, cycling. I, I love cycling. It is, for me, in my opinion, it's the most accessible form of adventure. Um, all you need is is a bicycle and, and your bicycles can be extraordinarily expensive and, you know, barrier to entry, quite difficult. It can also be a hand-me-down or mine are... Um, uh, hard rubbish finds so yeah a friend of a friend found a frame on a hard rubbish pile and then transferred it to my friend my friend said this bike might fit you let's put some tires on it uh yeah it's a great great little thing and it was very simple and now you can just get onto that bike and, and i could ride it as as far as i as i want to and with uh and then like i was saying earlier there where very rarely do i just get on a bike to go for a bike ride i'm usually commuting to the workshop or riding um, to go and do something else. Exactly that. I'll throw the throw the raft on for the day and, and go out for for a nice paddle down uh, down Birrung or something. And um, that's that's just such a great, easy, accessible form of adventure. And it you can go big, you can go small, you can go far, you can stay close. It's I I just love how easy it is to have something fun. The way you talk about it, it kind of sounds like it's it's more than just your adventure kind of machine or whatever. It's like it's a part of your everyday life as oh, well. Yeah. Like you, you kind of, how, how many Ks do you do in a week, do you reckon? Um, well, since Gwendolyn came along, not very many because, um, yeah, I wasn't riding in. I was working from home a lot more with, uh, with her. But um, now that she's... Um, getting a little bit well she's eight months is that older <laughs> apparently I thought you were going to say self-sufficient yeah, for a she is. Yeah, that's right yeah, here you go Gwen here's your food for the day be good and uh, call if you need any help so um yeah it's uh, I'm back on the bike now a little bit um going in and out of the workshop uh my uh, my wonderful partner Mariana who runs an art school um we've moved into the same building with the workshop in her art school now so we can be around Gwen at our place of work now which is just just fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to the to the future with that as well. And Gwen can be around all sorts of amazing art and uh, and machines, and she can um, appreciate uh, really what goes into building equipment, um, which I think transfers into a, a really neat worldview overall. As you can appreciate that things have to be made, and things have to be. Um, designed and created, and you can have a greater appreciation for things that you might have just got into and don't hardly think about like like getting on a bicycle the engineering on something like that sewing machines as well these things are feats of engineering they're just incredible machines to look at when you see them actually running um, so yeah i'm really excited to have her have her be a part of that um, but yeah so I, I could do anywhere from 
10, zero kilometers to maybe a couple hundred, uh, depending on how, how many days I commute to the workshop and what adventure I get up to or something. Um, so yeah, I think maybe as Gwen as well gets older here, I can get her onto the bike and then we can really start clicking, uh, or, um, yeah, getting the clicks up pretty, pretty high once, once she's on. So yeah, looking forward to that as well. At what point uh, in your kind of adventurous life did you really start just getting into gear and thinking about it more? Whoa, yeah, golly, when did that happen? Well, you know, 2010 is when I incorporated Terra Seguino Company, so I was certainly thinking about it then. Um, but I've always, I've always loved gear for whatever you happen to be doing at the time in your life and and that was when you know 2007 six seven eight you know is when i was really transitioning back into a, the adventure for the sake of adventure um and yeah it would have just been really learning there and and that that learning in a sense continues to this day there's always something cool pop up or and and the gear is evolving um, as well as, as the world changes, as technology comes in, as we realize something's not good or, or this is better, you know, that sort of thing. So that has, it's, it's always been a thing in my, in my brain that is, you know, you take something apart, you look at it, you figure out how it works. Um, it's probably then broken. <laughs> I've probably broken it. And then you try and put it back together. And if it's broken, then well, bad luck to it, but you, you know, you think then got to fix it. And so, yeah, I think that's, I can't honestly pinpoint an exact time of when it happened. It's just, it's such a evolved and long drawn out process really. And like, why did you start modifying gear? Well, yeah, I guess I would have started modifying gear for probably like the two main reasons would be to make it work better for myself, which would be customizing and, and two would be, exploring how it works and then if you could make it work better for everybody or again for yourself which kind of i guess like see answer one um yeah it's just playing around and experimenting really what were some of the first little modifications that you started making what did it actually now i got another question sure <laughs> did it start with did your tinkering start with outdoor gear uh, pro no, no, it wouldn't have. It would have started with some of the first things that I can remember tinkering with. With oh, maybe it is outdoor gear. Sorry, I've, I've lied. But it, in Canada, growing up, we had these things called GTs. And um, we're, we're, for the for the listener, we're sitting upstairs here in in my upstairs above my garage. In my garage, I have a GT, uh, and it is two skis on hunks of metal with a seat and a steering wheel with a ski on it, and you can go ridiculously fast as a five-year-old down snow-covered hills on these things. Um, so the first thing that I can remember modifying was the skis on that. I'd take it off and then my, my dad would be at work, but I'd go in and I'd grab his angle grinder and like, this is little Evan, I must have been eight eight or nine years old. I'm not sure if I should have been running an angle grinder, but I, you know, I'd, go, I'd find the ear protection, I'd put the ear protection on, put the, put the eyeglasses on. Uh, and then I was grinding down the, um, the skis to make it fit so I could get an angle so I could get a better edge so I could go faster and then the faster I went that means the higher I could go when I hit the jump uh, and yeah so me we had a good little, little good little crew of GTers back in in Canada there in the in the mid to mid to late 90s there was a, yeah we, we caused a lot of trouble so I can remember tinkering with the angle grinder on my ski and these are plastic skis so like yeah I've got the full angle grinder on the plastic skis 
plastic dust going everywhere. Um, yeah, this is that was that was our childhood in, in Canada. And then the tinkering would just go from there on other things. Um, I, I played a lot of sports, so if I had like a pair of um, uh, boots on or something, I would add more boot lace holes uh, to get a tighter fit. That sort of thing. I can really remember those. And then it just evolved into gear as my life kind of progressed, and I found myself back into adventure side of things. Uh, and it was tarps were some of the first things I started messing around with. Backpacks followed pretty quickly because so it was right at that time the coolest backpack in my mind ever was that uh, the Arcteros Neos line. I think it was a 65, a 75, 85. I think the 75, there was just a look to that backpack that I remember just falling in love with and being like, that is, that is so cool. But um, yeah, the tarps were, tarps were early tinkering because they're very simple in construction, just two big pieces of material or one if you're lucky. Uh, and you put them together and then put a hem around the side. Um, so that was, that was some early tinkering in there. And, and then it just, it just went from there and would have been love of many things, the tinkering, the experimenting, but also the sewing machine and how it was working. I, I was just fascinated how that thing would then create something that would save my life in other situations. Yeah. What a, they're just incredible machines. So <laughs> What I'm kind of hearing here is that Terrorosa gear, the true beginning of it, was an eight-year-old Evan with an angle grinder just trying to get some air time. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The hang, I love more that. hang time, the better. And and how far you've come from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, give me an angle grinder any day. But, um, but I mean, today you, you make much more than just GTs to get some, some air time with plastic skis. Um, <laughs> You're running a, a pretty like um, much bigger operation with Terra Rossa. What um you touched on a few of them, but what uh what products do you make? Yeah, golly, at the moment, um, yeah, there's there's quite a few. I I like to have I like to have a big repertoire because I I like like I was saying earlier, uh, the, you know, all the flavors of the pie. Give me all the slices. This it's great. Um, so the bike packing stuff is, is always popular and it's always going Melbourne in particular has, um, an absolutely phenomenal bike scene all the way from roadies to extreme bike packing legends in like Sarah and Jesse over at curve. Like, you know, these, these people who can do incredible things on these two wheeled machines. So the bike packing stuff is always really, really fun. So I haven't really named anything in particular, but like if I go back a step here to the bike packing, it'd be um, saddlebags, frame bags. Frame bags are always a, a great one because they're always custom. Um, everybody has a seems to have a different bike that's a different size and it's going to a different thing and they want something special to go, which will aid in their own journeys. Um, and I, I love that. I think that's, that's the best. Um, with the outdoor gear, I've got... Um, you know, your tarps for, for sim quick, simple shelters, there's bothy bags for emergency situations. Um, and they've been used all over the world. They go down to Antarctica with, uh, the Australian Antarctic division. Um, friends use them, schools use them. They're really neat, really simple. It's and, you, the ones you've made are down there with the Antarctic division. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So they go down every season, um, at the moment with, uh, with the field officers. Um, so yeah, if they're, they're out do, doing their thing and counting their penguins and checking all the ice and getting all the climate data, all those, you know, their heroes down there getting all sorts of data that, uh, really you know, benefit humanity. Um, so yeah, super, super cool. 
Um, and then uh, what else do we make? Um, look, my personal um, pride and preference, I think, is sleeping kit. I love, I love the sleeping kit. So there's quilts uh, and sleeping bags, and um, again, offshoots of those. It's it's nearly endless what you can do with those sort of things. But mine are at the moment there's quilts of varying thicknesses for varying warmths. There's half quilts, again, varying thicknesses, varying warmth, sleeping bags with, um, I've gone with the center zip. Uh, I really like that idea with um, uh, climbing. It's a classic thing for climbing. I don't really ever use it like that, to be completely honest. But the zip opens up the center of the chest, and then there's more zip tabs below it. And you can get your hands out without the sleeping bag opening up. You can keep the hood on at the same time. Really useful belaying from your bag and if you wanted to i honestly have never done that i've never in my entire life belayed from my sleeping <laughs> bag um but i have drank a ton of coffee from my sleeping bag so uh, that's they may just call it the coffee opening uh zip it up the zip it open and uh, make your coffee uh cold cold canadian coast mountain night or uh up atop of bogong or main range or something real chilly um, you know, that's where it comes into itself for sure. Um, and then there's the sleeping covers as well. That's made from a, a Tyvek with breathable polyethylene sort of stuff. Um, you see it, uh, all over the place. It's not the stuff I'll reiterate that's on the side of buildings. That's home wrap Tyvek. It's a different structure Tyvek. That Tyvek is fantastic for ground sheets and, um, that sort of thing, tent, tent floors and tent floor reinforcement, etc. But this, this Tyvek is a soft structure and it's, um, it's great as a sleeping cover, not a bivy, but a sleeping cover. Um, so the sleeping system that you can combine all of what I've just talked about there into one unit for a very cold trip or maybe just take the half bag and a jacket for a fast and light trip. Uh, maybe you're on your bike or just running through somewhere. Um, so yeah, those, those op options for um, uh, like a modularity um, are really cool and I, I really like that and that's that's probably some of my favorite kit and sustainability is a like when we've just been chatting today while we were cycling it's kind of come up a few times um and it seems like it's a big part of what you do both in your adventuring and with terra rossa what does sustainable gear mean to you yeah i get there's there's that question has a few levels to it sustainable gear has oh man like the Terrarosa, like I said, is is a glacier complex, um, and the first time we tried to get to it was in 2009. Um, so not not all that long ago in the terms of how old the Terrarosa glacier is itself. But in the time since then to now, we've seen it shrink, extraordinary to the point that you you could possibly start to predict the end of the Terrarosa glacier when this thing has been a glacier for I, I can't even say how long I wouldn't know I'm sure I'm sure you know a scientist and um, you know people with the resources could could test the ice and see how long but then has that ice that's only as old as that ice has that ice been formed on older ice that is now melted away or past like this it's it's it kind of breaks my heart to see this sort of thing happen in uh in in my lifetime when it's been there for uh, like how long i don't know time immemorial sort of thing like you know the last last ice age was it there before that how do we know how's the land changed Boy, it's in incredible sort of uh um things to to really dive into like that and 
it's, it's also sometimes strikes me as interesting that it's even a conversation like sustainable gear like I, it, when i say gear you just think that shouldn't it be sustainable anyway um, why do we need to call it sustainable gear I, I i hope that that would just be gear um so yeah it's it's quite quite important i think across all things for everybody and as you start building and you know realizing that there is a footprint from everything that you do in terms of building but and then this is where gear and everything can really influence the rest of my life because everybody's going to have a footprint and there's nothing we can do about that we, we all have a life that we want to live and and, and work through uh, and it's the same with with the gear in a sense like you know, there's energy that goes into producing the materials i don't have any control over that the, what I can control when I make it is the, the where does the energy for my sewing machines come from? Is it solar? Is it from the grid? Is the, the grid, we're obviously in Australia, so that's going to be coal, power plant. You know, you can start how many, how many steps back down the line do you want to go? How many steps back down the line will you accept before you, you call it quits on something or, you know, it's, yeah, it's just a, a completely wild thing. And it's, it's something that's at the, at the forefront of my mind pretty much all of the time um and it's then comes down to as you know as with so many things is what can i control uh what can i do better what could i influence to do better uh and what do i then have to accept as um part of the footprint for for building uh which is going to be um a necessary step at some point otherwise you would never build anything what are some of those things that you're thinking about at the moment in terms of sustainability and gear? Yeah, the sustainability and yeah, the things at the forefront of my mind are um, definitely like that, uh, that circular loop. Um, and I think that that one's really coming into prominence with, uh, with some of the big, big companies around really pushing some, some pretty good things and they mean it. It's not just, a, you know, a big lie. Um, I really like the recycled materials. And I really like um, the scraps and offcuts. Um, so instead of sending something to landfill from the, my workshop floor, it'll be picked up and then put back into another piece. And that, that's awesome because now that, that piece is now unique. That's a one-off piece. It would never be made with a piece right there with that piece next to it sewn to it. Yeah, that's, so it's its own character now. It's, it's really cool. And that's something that's just so simple to do. Um, I think, yeah, with the Arcteryx and the and the Rebird idea, I think they have their they have the resources to create something really cool, uh, and that's really fun um, things to see what they can do. As you know, you have these amazing items, end of life um, sort of thing, come together into something else, which would be upcycling. I guess that's the next. So picking something up the floor. I don't think that that's really upcycling. I think upcycling was when it was a product made into another product. I think it would probably be the definition. Um, so, I, and I'm certainly not recycling um, the pieces off the floor. I think that's just, yeah, now, now I'm in a loop in my head here trying to figure out what some of this stuff would be. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's good fun. But I think like creating is least waste, um, reusing same things and then creating for me creating something that's durable that could last and last and last and last and then when it finally starts to break down finally does break down um, it can be remade or repaired um, into something else i really like the remade ideas 
taking things that were and then making them into something new. That's that always has been something that I've been been fascinated with. And you made a really nice point there as well that a big aspect of sustainable gear is just making good gear. The best, you know, the best gear is the gear that doesn't have to be recycled or upcycled because it just lasts. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of the first step is um, making quality gear and buying quality gear so that we're not churning through it as quickly. For sure. And again, it's it's always a rabbit hole because you can create heirloom gear and things that will last for a long time. But at what point does it maybe become obsolete because of design limitations? And that sort of, um, you know, uh, thing, not just fashion wise, I think something that's going to last so long, fashion or style is now no longer important. It would actually be design because um, like, for example, for again, for the listeners up in uh, on the on the podcast here, we're in my upstairs. I've got a backpack here that was made in Vancouver in 1945 and it is still functional as a backpack, but I won't use it very much, if at all because it's not very comfortable and design on it is not ideal, but the dang thing has lasted what 80 something years now. And it still will carry a load. It's just, I don't really like a wooden frame in my gear. I would, uh, you know, I would prefer something a little lighter and, um, you know, maybe a little bit more, uh, not durable. The wood obviously has gone for ages at the, I don't know, maybe we need to bring back the wood frame backpack. Maybe I've just convinced myself of something here. It's like, yeah, you've just, as you've been talking, just you've talked yourself into it. All right, Bunnings, to, I need to, a bunch of yeah, two by fours. Terrorosa, wooden frames and canvas backpacks coming up next. Yeah, like we're looking at this bag here. It's a Trapper Nelson is what the bag's called. It's literally got two pieces of wood that go upright. They're capped with metal caps that are nailed on leather straps everywhere and all the buckles are metal um so this thing doesn't scream ultra light um it's like a cross between like a weapon and a backpack yeah, when you start um, describing it with like sure. steel caps yeah like. <laughs> you de- i think we should probably sharpen those steel caps yeah this is gonna for the new dystopian future we're all heading into if we can't sort out this climate crisis <laughs> and you're the first design ambassador for Arcteryx in Australia. Uh, they've recently launched their Rebird um, Circularity Project here in Oz. Um, can you tell me what that is and how, how have you been involved in Rebird and with Arcteryx? Yeah, super exciting. Uh, really, um, yeah, it's just, it's. Uh, I'd, I'd never really thought of something like this, but if I had, I guess then it would have been a dream come true in a, in a sense. I really, I admire Arcteryx uh, on a lot of levels for, um, for what they do. They come from Vancouver uh, as well. So I've, um, you know, it's kind of always had an eye on them for as long as I can remember uh, being involved with the outdoors. And I think this Rebird program that they're, uh, they're working on and developing is, is going to be um, really special. It's going to be something really cool. Uh, so, yeah, super stoked to be a part of it here in Australia. And uh, kind of the outline of what happens for, for me as I see it is um, they'll all get some end-of-life products, like, uh, like the best example that everyone would know is a rain jacket. So the rain jacket has reached the end of its usable life as a rain jacket, but there's, it, it's not literally falling apart. It's still a jacket when you look at it. And within that jacket will 
be the zippers, uh, maybe some press studs, some snaps, little bits of hardware on, say, draw cords, that sort of thing. Th that stuff's all great still. The zipper might be, say, delaminating or have a broken tooth or something small, but that's something that I get now I get to work around that. So with that jacket, that jacket is now not just a jacket, it's raw materials. And I get to take those raw materials and create something new from those raw materials. And um, yeah, the, the, the jacket is a great example because everyone knows it. Everyone's had a jacket that's worn out. Um, and yeah, first foremost, can you repair it? Can you fix it? Can it still be a jacket? Maybe not. This one's end of life. It's not going to function correctly with, uh, you know, with something like Arc'teryx. These jackets need to because you're in life or death situations with some of this gear. Uh, and if it's not going to function, that's end of life. So now let's make from this jacket something really cool. Um, so I've made personally for myself out of an Arc'teryx jacket, my frame bag for my bikepacking bicycle. Um, and then I've made some chalk bags from the sleeves that were left over. Uh, I grabbed the zippers were all incorporated into the, into that bag. Um, but I've worked on a couple little patterns here. I can get some really rad little ski style backpacks that are, uh, that are a lot of fun, nice narrow profile. So you can zip through trees and that sort of thing. Um, slap your skis on for the climb up, uh, when you're touring. Um, and all of this can come from a, a single jacket. So if we get two or three, now you've got different colors. You might have some different zips and all sorts of things. You can start to combine all these. You get contrasting colors. Uh, you get aesthetics that look really good. And they're all coming from um, jackets that uh, that are just kind of going to be uh, reburded. Uh, I wonder if that's the verb. Yeah. <laughs> Let's create some words now. So that's going to be, all those jackets are going to be reburded into something really cool. For gear to last this long, it kind of, there's going to be times when you need to repair it and adventure gear is not always the easiest to repair. Sometimes the fabrics and the materials can be hard to work with. Have you got any advice to people um, on how they can patch their own gear and kind of help it last longer? Yeah, I mean, it would come down to the, the type of material. Um, and that's maybe something uh, we could have touched on in a, what some of the earlier questions that a lot of these new materials that are, that are coming into development or being released now and being used. One of the cool things about some of them is that they are very easy to repair. Um, they'll take adhesives very well. So a field repair, duct tape, no problem. Whereas, um, like say some of the tents of the old days, older days, you know, the nineties, two thousands, all that, you know, sill nylon, basically what I'm hitting at, uh, that's hard to tape because the siliconization just won't allow much adhesive to, to stick to it. So field repairs become a little bit more difficult, uh, repairs at home be a little bit more difficult because it, you can't just slap on a cool patch. Um, it's gotta be, you know, adhered to it somehow, which is a lot more difficult it takes, um, you know, maybe a little bit more of a nasty glue or you need to sew it on, which has now punctured your um, protection and that needs to be sealed. And that might be, again, be a nasty glue or a nasty sealant, which isn't, uh, isn't super good. So yeah, some of these things like the DCF tarp that I was banging on about a few minutes ago. Um, awesome. You put a hole in that, anything will tape over that. It's just a, a simple laminate uh, that'll hold and you'll get out of trouble free. Uh, or for however much a patch cost. Same with uh, some of these backpack materials that I've been messing around with lately. Um, they're all all laminates uh, or have a laminated side if they're a woven face fabric uh, and that will take um, an adhesive really well. It's also making designing, it's changing the way things will be designed because we can seal them ourselves. They, they don't need to go through a big machine if you wanted to run them over a seam sealer, sure, but now you can do it a lot easier by hand with just pressure. 
pressure sensitive adhesive and that will still make an incredible piece of gear um, yeah super sensational That's a compound feed machine. Unison feed is another name for it. Uh, and that will do, so you can see how high the machine is not live. So boom, you can see how thick a thing you can get underneath that is. So that's, yeah. there's canvas, two layers. What's that? Four layers, eight layers, 10, 12 layers of regular canvas. Still boom. With no, no problem. I won't go as quick as I was, <laughs> just because it's got more material to actually travel through, but it's still... Yeah, great. So for, in terms of advice for at home, um, I would say go for it. Like, just, just give her. If you want to try and fix something, go for it and get out a sewing machine and give it a try. If it's ugly as heck, well, you know, you've got a story. You know, you've got a you've got a museum piece now. There was you know, that hole was from this, and I tried to fix it, and I made it worse but better at the same time. Then go for it. Um, and uh, there is resources around, and I, I if I'm one of them as well, shoot me a message, and if I can answer the question, I'll, I'll certainly give it my best shot. Um, but there's all sorts of cool things and um, options available for people to repair these days. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, let's um, let's leave it there. We've um, we've gone like so far off script <laughs> for for so much of this. It's been um for me like such an amazing chat. I've been kind of just <laughs> sitting here in awe, like absorbing it all uh most of the time and stuff. And then and then being like, oh, I've, I've got to ask another question. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. Um, so I've I've really really enjoyed it. Um, and and kind of just loved hearing about your the whole like journey into adventure and into making gear. Um, from these kind of trips back in Canada and playing around with an angle grinder to where you are now and then your whole philosophy around it and how it's shaped by the outdoors. So it's been such an awesome chat. Um, I've really, really enjoyed it and really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. It's been been great. What a great great afternoon and morning and what time is it now? <laughs> I love that. Who, who needs a watch, right? Is it still daylight? It's yeah, still yeah. daylight. <laughs> Let's go do something. I want to say a huge thanks to Pat Corden for hosting today, to Evan from Terrorossa Gear, and to Arcteryx, of course, for sponsoring the show. This episode was produced and edited by the one and only Sean Brain. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.